Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. So imagine you're walking across a bridge and you see someone standing by the rail and you think, is that person taking a picture or is that person thinking about jumping? What would you do? I mean, you're a social worker, right? So you're, you're trained in crisis response. You're, you're trained in how to work with people who are uh, in acute distress. But would you know what to do? I'm not sure I would. Well, today's episode, I'm talking with a guy who did this for years, Kevin Briggs. I was with the Highway Patrol for almost 24 years and retired as a supervisor, as the, the motor sergeant riding a motorcycle. That's a phenomenal job. I had um, a, a different kind of duty working in the Marin area as we handled the Golden Gate Bridge. And it was unusual because we lose some somewhere between uh, 25 and 60 folks a year off of that bridge to suicide, which is the top site in the United States. Well, if you're thinking to yourself, this guy sounds familiar. It might be because you've heard him before. You could be one of the millions of people who has seen his TED Talk or read his book, Guardian of the Golden Gate. Now, I saw the TED Talk and I read the book before I met Kevin, In fact, this interview is a little bit of luck that fell into my lap. In April of 2016, I was at the American Association of Suicidology Conference in Chicago. Now, the conference was held at the Palmer House. It's a beautiful, like old-style Chicago hotel. And I was walking through the lobby when I saw Bill Schmitz talking with Kevin Briggs. Bill Schmitz is the uh, past president of the American Association of Suicidology, and I I spoke with him on episode 97 when I talked with folks about live tweeting conferences. I saw Bill talking with Kevin. Do you ever have those moments where you're like, dude, I'd like to meet this person? Well, so I went up to Bill, and he did me right. He introduced me uh, to Kevin, and he said some very nice things about the podcast. Kevin agreed to be interviewed. So, I met him up in his hotel room, and we talked about what it was like to be a negotiator working with people who were seconds away from jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge. He shared some of his strategies and struggles working with the hundreds of people, some of whom jumped and some whom didn't. He talked about getting famous and doing a TED Talk. And then he shared something very personal the story of how he found out that his son had been thinking of killing himself. Well, I'm really excited to share this episode with you because of what we can learn from Kevin about the the professional side of working with folks in acute suicidal crises and the personal side of what we as professionals and first responders can do to take care of ourselves and our families. And now... Without further ado, on to episode 104 of the Social Work Podcast, Guardian of the Golden Gate, an interview with Kevin Briggs. Kevin, thank you so much for being here on the Social Work Podcast and talking with us today. Can you tell us what it was like being on Highway Patrol? Yes, actually, thank you for having me. Pleasure to do this. Um, 
uh, typically we'll get a call. People will call in on 911 or there are some phones on the bridge that go right to the Golden Gate Bridge's sergeant's office that they have. They have our patrol unit, um, like security guards, and then they will immediately call us and we will respond. Or it's a 911 call. A person, sometimes we've had them to where the person on themselves will be calling 911 saying they need help. And then they'll respond to us and we'll get the call and go out there. Or just in patrolling, we'll see someone that may look despondent. Generally, they're by themselves. They're solo. And, you know, many times someone's just on vacation by themselves. They're just out there to take pictures. But we still we want to find out. We want to make sure they're okay. So we just general conversation with them. And if they're doing good, hey, glad to meet you. Where are you from? Talk to them a little bit and they're on their way. Sometimes there's those folks who are despondent, and we'll talk to them for a while. Hopefully, we can get them even in the, in the parking lot before they get up to the bridge. But once in a while, you know, they're over that rail, and they're standing on what we call the cord, which is an I-beam over that rail. And that's where we really got to get our stuff together and uh, start focusing. Typically, if, if I'm the one that's going to do this negotiation, talking to an individual, I first start out preparing my mind. I see a little prayer on my way down. Everything's going to go smooth for us and for them. And, you know, when I get there, um, I'm going to stop a little ways away from them and kind of look over the scene a little bit and ask them, you know, can I come up and speak with you and introduce myself? They see I'm wearing a uniform. They know I'm, I'm somebody of, of some sort. But I don't say the highway patrol typically. I'll just say, Hi, I'm, I'm Kevin. Can I come up and speak with you? Empowering them from the very start is very, very important to me. And I think it is to them also. And also the clothing. I look at what they're wearing, and it can get bitterly cold on that bridge, especially in the summer months, really. Uh, June, July, August tend to be very, very foggy on that bridge, so it can be very, very cold. It could be noon out and still miserably cold. Uh, you go just a few miles up north, it might be 85, 90 degrees. But just on that bridge, all the weather funnels into that. So, But my point to this is, if that person's just wearing a T-shirt or a shirt and not a jacket, then I want to be like that also. I want to feel what they're feeling. I think that's important. So I won't wear my jacket. And and, uh, and it kind of helps because they'll see me shivering. And I know they're shivering. So, hey, man, it's cold. Why don't we get out of here and get some hot chocolate or something? And, and you know, we start like that. You're really taking this idea of uh, connecting with that person to a level that I think most people wouldn't even imagine when working with someone in crisis. Like you're, you're literally saying, okay, I'm not gonna wear my jacket, I'm not gonna be comfortable, so that they know that I'm just a little bit closer to where they are. I, I think that's important. I think many times maybe these folks have spoken with, with a lot of people, but those folks are all uncomfortable. You know, they're behind their desk, they have the degrees, they have everything else, they know what's going on. Where's this person suffering? Well, I want to see that I'm suffering too. I'm gonna be out there, I'm just another Joe like you out here. Let's see how we can help each other out. Can you walk us through one of the calls that you got? Absolutely. Shortly before I retired, I retired in November of 2013. On July 22nd of that year, we received a call of a man, what we say, over the rail, over the pedestrian rail. He was on that cord, on that I-beam. And I was a supervisor. I responded from the office down to the bridge. And it just so happens that the officers assigned to work that area were busy. They weren't able to respond right then. So I was the first CHP person there. And when I got there, there was already a Golden Gate Bridge security guard speaking with the gentleman over the rail. And that person, his name was Jason Garber. He was uh, 32 years old from New Jersey, had actually flown out to the bridge three times, this being his third time, from New Jersey all the way to San Francisco to the Golden Gate Bridge where he wanted to attempt this suicide. 
So the particular bridge officer was doing a great job. He's been around for a while, um, very empathetic, very intelligent, doing a great job. So I kind of backed him up a little bit, and I would go in now and again. But it turns out Jason was, to me, a very intelligent individual. He was the gentleman over the rail. He had just suffered from mental illness for many, many years. And these are the, the kind of the three things I see all the time. Folks suffering from mental, from mental illness, going off of their medication, which he had, and feeling like they're a burden to their family, which he felt. Those three things I see quite frequently. And that's what was going on with Jason. Jason was not wearing a jacket. So, of course, I wasn't wearing mine. And this was in the late afternoon, July, and it was getting quite cold out. But it wasn't foggy that day, so we were very lucky. As we would develop this, what I thought I'd a rapport with Jason, you know, he was um, very articulate in his in his speech. You could tell the man was educated. He was a poet, a writer, and he was really, really neat to talk to. At one point, I remember the Golden Gate Bridge officer telling Jason, he goes, Jason, you should be on this side talking to folks over the rail. That's how intelligent this, this man seemed. But he was suffering. And this is what happens to folks. They feel they're stuffed in the corner by themselves. And that, that this is the only alternative they have. So as we progressed with this, Jason's, we see his emotions going up and down and up and down. And as negotiators, we try to really stretch the time out by talking with these folks, open-ended questions and all these things. And why do you stretch the time out? Because many, many times folks are, their, their levels of uh, emotions are very, very high. And as humans, we can't maintain that high emotion for a long time. So we try to stretch that time out. If they will tell us the story of what's going on in their life, then boom, it allows for that time to break down, those emotions to come down, letting that more rational thought come up. And that's what we try to do. That's in theory anyway. And we go by what I, what I teach and what I've been taught is the, the 80-20 principle. If they're talking, we let them talk 80% of the time and we will talk just 20% of the time. That's ideal. That's, that's another thing what we really try to stress. So, and Jason would answer most of our questions. He's just having a very, very tough time, and, and he's had enough. Um, at one point, about an hour or so into this, Jason asked us if we knew the story of Pandora's box, which is very unique because I've never had someone say something like that out there. And that threw me. Um, and we said yes, but, and then Jason had been getting texts and phone calls. He had actually thrown out an email typed an email to his friends to go out about the time that he thought he would be on the bridge. And that's exactly what occurred. So here is his phone, which he had in his lap, and his phone's ringing and buzzing, doing all that. And he would look at it, never answer it. Uh, he would be happy, and then he would be sad. A tear would come out. He was going through all these emotions, but he would never answer the phone. But when he asked us about Pandora's box, and we said yes, and we know, we know about Pandora's box with the box that she opens up and all these bad things come out and these sorrows and plagues and things. And the only good thing in that box is hope. Well, Jason, as profound as he was, how intelligent he was, he says, when I open the box, hope is the greatest evil. There was no hope for this guy. You know, hope, hope was there. It's like, it's always just out of reach. And that was, that, that threw me back. I've never heard that before. That's how amazing this young man was. So I stepped back a little bit and I'm pondering this and trying to think, okay, what can I say about this? It really stumped me. Um, and it was a, a couple of minutes. And then I'm, as I'm looking at Jason, you know, I see one single tear. He had been crying off and on. But at this point, I see a tear just come out of his right eye and go down his cheek. And he was sitting on this I-beam straddling it. 
and he just leans to his right, and he's gone. Falls all the way down to the water. Um, I watch him go, which you're not supposed to do, but I always do, because for one, I have to mark. I want to mark the body. These, it's kind of mountainous areas on both sides that come in and funnel the water to and fro, you know, with the with the tides and all. And they're treacherous. We lose bodies quickly. So when these instances occur, we call the Coast Guard and they come out and they position themselves just a little ways east of the bridge where most folks go off of the east side, go looking towards the bay and Alcatraz. So they were right there on the spot. We threw out a marker, a flare marker, which throws up smoke, so that marks the body too. Even though the, the, the uh, Coast Guard was right there, I still want to mark that body. I don't want to lose that body if at all possible. It's very important, you know, for the family and, and the whole bit. So we do that. Coast Guard picks up the body, and they're bringing him back to the Coast Guard station. I step back. I'm with the, with the Golden Gate Bridge officer, and we're just kind of stumped on this. I, I thought we were in the middle of this. Now, it can go bad at any time. I know this. He knows this. We've seen this. But I thought we were in the middle of this thing, still talking for a while. It really, it really uh, upset us. And, it, I mean, it would at the final point of anybody going. But uh, we weren't ready for this particular act to go at this time. But as we're standing there, just trying to take this all in, and I'm worried about the officers on both sides because we stopped the pedestrian traffic on the sidewalk of the bridge, so I want to make sure they're doing okay. Um, a gentleman comes running up to me, and he goes, Officer, he goes, there's a body in the water. Uh, and I was pissed. What the hell do you think I've been doing for an hour? Well, he goes, no, another one. Now, we were in the middle of the bridge, midpoint of the bridge, when this happened, this instance. Up at the North Tower... Another gentleman had jumped right about the same time. So I responded up there on a motorcycle. It takes a couple of minutes to get there. And Bridge responded also, and they have the flare markers. When I get there, I see the body in the water floating out into the bay. I immediately call for the Coast Guard. They can't respond because they're busy with Jason's body. So we have the marker out, and you see the marker floating out into the bay, plus Jason's marker that was from mid-span. And I took a couple of photos to try to mark everything. Here comes a big container ship full of containers, and it ran over that body not to be found. So when people look up statistics about the bridge and they say th- 35, 35 people died this year or something, a lot of times that's not right. And I tell them it's not right because when a body is not discovered, like this one that was ran over by this big ship, it's not counted. The Marin County Coroner who handles these cases only takes a number when they have a body. So if there's not a body, there's not a number. So folks that oh, Briggs doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, this is why. So in that year that I retired, there were close to 60 folks that we lost off of that bridge. And that's not even including the folks that we take off for mental health evaluations. Now, this takes a heavy toll on the officers. But I always tell folks, let's forget that for a minute. What about the family and friends? So after this, I go back to the office. And Jason was from New Jersey, like I said. I want the family to be notified. I know in my mind this is Jason Garber. I had his ID. He told me his parents' name, where he lived, the telephone number. I had everything about this guy. So in my mind, that's Jason. But I know the coroner would not be contacting the family until they had their fingerprints, dental records, whatever they needed to identify. It might be a couple days. I didn't think that was right. I'm thinking if that's my little boy, I want to know right now. So I called up the local police department in New Jersey, and this was around 8.30 in the evening Pacific time be 1130 back east. I called the local police department and asked them, could you do a notification for me, please? And we talked for a little while and they go, oh yeah, we'll handle that. He puts me on hold, comes back in a couple of minutes, confirms everything with me, the name and all that. 
And he goes, uh, his father's here right now filing a missing persons report. And this goes back to that email that Jason had sent out. They find out about that. They go to the, the police department, the family, because now they're going to put this uh, order out to look for this kid. So I get on the phone with his father, and I was feeling very guilty. Um, in my mind, I'm thinking that he's mad at me. Like, I, I failed. I didn't do the job. But he wasn't. But he was very stern in his voice. His son had just passed away. He said, you know, what could be worse than that? Anything that I can think of. And I'm feeling horrible. I'm pretty emotional. And I think he realized that. Um, and after, I don't know, half an hour, however long we spoke, he tells me, he goes, now I have to go tell my wife. When I get home, I'm going to call you back. Pretty strict and stern like this. And I said, yes, sir. Uh, I was supposed to be going home right when this happened. But who cares? It doesn't matter. I'm, now we have this to handle. So I wait another half hour or so, and he calls me back. And he's trying to get more information out of me and, and ask me, you know, like, what would we do and, and all this. But it's just his way that I found out later on. He's a, a, a stern man, a, you know, a good man. It's just how his way. And I could hear Mrs. Garber, Jason's mother, just wailing in the background. And it's just horrible. We try our best. I felt that what could we have done different? How could you know, we let this happen? These things happen. We know these things are going to happen to us. It, it doesn't set with us any better, though. So that night, to tell you to be honest, it sucked for me. I'm sure it's, it was terrible for the family, but for me, it was it was bad. I keep replaying it in my mind, as I do today. Um, what could we do different? What could I have done different? Maybe nothing. It was He came out there three times to do this act. Boom. He did it. But I think the empathy and, and uh, this weighs on you. But that next day was, was uh, quite memorable for me because I come back into work. Jason's father said he was going to call and speak with me that next day. When I came into work, there's a phone call for me. I'm expecting it's Jason's father, and we're going, okay, i got to relive this thing again. But it's for the family. It's, you have to do this. It's not. It turns out it's their family rabbi. And he explains who he is. He had worked with police departments before talking to families uh, about death notifications and things. So he was aware of, of how things go and how officers think somewhat. And I tell him what's going on. And I remember being pretty emotional on the phone. And he goes, Kevin, he goes, listen to me. He goes, if you ever stop feeling as you do right now, get the hell out of the business because you're no use to anybody. And that helped me. That really did. And I was, that's pretty much exactly how he said that. So we talked for a while. And I think that, that helped me through this whole thing. But, you know, and just in dealing with the family, I actually flew out there. I was speaking out there on the East Coast. And I had some time. I rented a car and I went to meet the family. And it was at a memorial for Jason around a lake that he would run around. So we, we walk or ran around the lake. I met his family and friends and such. And then the Garbers invited me to dinner that evening. And of course I accepted. And I thought, all right, this will be family and friends and hopefully I can meet the rabbi. I thought it'd be more of a celebration of life. But it, it turned out to be not that. It was just Mr. and Mrs. Garber and myself. Oh, this is gonna be tough. This is gonna be really tough. I still gotta do it, you have to do it. So. I go to the house, and Mrs. Garber doesn't say very much. She's cordial, but she just doesn't say much. Mr. Garber says a whole lot of stuff. He never once blamed me. He actually thanked me for being there. He says, I'm glad Jason had you there and the other bridge officer. That helped. But Jason was, he was a phenomenal person. He showed me lots of Jason's writings and everything, drawings and things that Jason had done. Um, it was, he was an amazing individual. 
He just suffered from mental illness. And I tell folks, no matter who you are, if you're suffering, you can get to that point. The highest educated to the lowest educated, whether you're a billionaire or have no money, it doesn't matter who you are. You can get to that point. I've seen it. So, you know, the, the, fam, the families suffer. And to this day, you know, it, it's, it has taken a heavy, heavy toll on Mr. Garber. He no longer works. Um, basically, he's around that house looking at, at, at Jason's drawings, his literature and things that Jason has done. And I tell folks, this is what suicide does to folks. It wrecks families. So if you think that, that your pain is gone because you're gone and you're not going to be um, doing anything, any, cause any more pain to your family, you're not. You're putting more pain onto your family. People say the ripple effect of, of a suicide. It's not. It's a tsunami. It devastates families. And, and that's how I feel, and that's really what happens. So I read in your book, uh, Guardian of the Golden Gate, about how you started to get media attention um, as a result of your work doing suicide prevention on the bridge. And this led to a TED Talk. Um, can you can you tell us what it was like to do a TED Talk? Sure. And I'll t- I remember the phone call. I was. Uh, it happened in December. I take most of December's off. I, I enjoy Christmas time. Really a big fan of that. So, and I remember it was the Yahoo News segment that really, really kicked everything off. Um, I had received some calls at home saying there's a lot of people calling in because that Yahoo News segment came out December 5th on my birthday. That's the only reason I can remember that. But I remember getting calls at home saying there's a lot of people calling that want to see you and talk to you. And I go, what? Me? Why? So I stop in at work one day and, and I listen to my messages. And one of them is for a TED Talk. And I didn't really comprehend it. I had not watched many TED Talks, if any. I really didn't even know what, what TED was about. I'd heard of it, but, I, you know, I tell folks, to be honest with you, I didn't really hear of it. So I asked one of my mentors and some other people, and they were all over me. You call him back right now. What do you think you're doing? That's huge. That's huge. Call him back. Okay, I'll call him back. Hi, this is Kevin Briggs. We settled up. I said, sure, I'll be happy to do it. And I had done very, very, very little public speaking. So this TED Talk was one of my first ones. Um, we practiced online a couple times with the folks. I wrote a speech out, had a little help from a couple people, and I, I know what I wanted to convey, but I didn't know if other people would allow them to hear that. But this is what they wanted. And you know, we went over it a few times, practiced, and then I went to Vancouver. It was the first year that they were having the, the actual TED there. They moved it to Vancouver. And I'm brand new to all of this, staying in a hotel, a phenomenal hotel. And I go over and I go inside, and there's people everywhere. And as I'm talking to people, it's really neat because even though there's lots and lots of people there, when you stand next to someone, you immediately start talking to them. Everybody's very friendly, whether you're a Harvard graduate or a juggler on the street. Everybody talks to everybody. It's very unique. I haven't seen that before. And as a cop, we're always, you know, you held back a little bit and you're always watching everybody. This was really, really a, an amazing experience. And I practiced there. My talk was not until Friday. It's a week-long deal that Ted is. My talk was not till Friday, and I was the last person in the morning session. So I had all week. Um, and I went and saw some talks, but most of my time actually was spent up in my room practicing. So I missed a lot of the TED, which, you know, I don't know what's better. I missed my only shot at a TED talk, at a TED here. But it, it helped because I practiced, practiced, practiced. I know what I wanted to convey, and I wanted to be real true, my feelings coming out, and, you know, showing folks this is what it's like. So... On the day of the TED Talk, I had practiced so much. Here comes my time to go up on stage. And I walk up on stage, and I start talking. And um, my memory is not very good at all these days. But I had practiced so much, and I know I conveyed it with my emotions that 
things were coming out of my mouth as I'm stepping, and I had difficulty remembering a couple parts of what I wanted to say, but it all came out as I wanted to do it. And I remember walking on the stage going, okay, turn right, walk over here a little bit, turn left, walk over here, look over here, look over here. I'm doing a TED Talk. All this is going through my mind as I'm talking, as I'm doing this. It was the weirdest thing that hasn't happened after that, but it was just very strange. And, you know, really, um, something before this that I want to tell you is it was seeing these folks and realizing who's there. I did a lot of protective services details for presidents, for Gore and, and these presidents. I have pictures with them. You know, they walk down the line and shake your hand and say hi. Well, Gore was there. Sting was there. All these folks. They threw a dinner for the speakers, and anybody who wants to come and attend and, lear- and attend and learn a little more about you can. So these folks came and wanted to learn a little more about what I had done. And these folks, I had a Harvard graduates, or most of them. I go, oh, my God, I have very little education. I got, you know, my school of hard knocks kind of thing. So I was kind of intimidated there. All these folks were, were a lot of high rollers. To me, it was the movers and shakers of the world. It was really, really something phenomenal. This one gentleman that I had breakfast with twice, really tall guy, like six foot five. And, and talking with him, very, very nice gentleman, lived in, I believe, North Carolina. He had sold his oil company in Texas for, I believe, $35 billion dollars billion dollars. And he said, you know what? I didn't get that much money. He goes, but I'm doing okay. But he didn't throw it in my face. It wasn't egotistical. It was just the way he did it. It was a very nice man. So I confided in him. I go, you know what? I go, all these people around here, you know, most of these folks are very highly educated and doing very, very well. I'm a traffic cop. It, it's, I don't even know if I should be here. So he goes, Kevin, he goes, look around. He goes, take a look. Oh, yeah. He goes, do you think anybody else here has saved a person's life? So he really helped me. He really did. Um, the TED experience was, was phenomenal. I am so grateful to Chris Anderson, the curator, uh, for allowing me to do this. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. What that guy said to you, I think, is so important because at the end of the day, it isn't about how much money we have or you know, how important other people think we are. It's, it's about the lives that we save and the lives that we, that we touch. And you have clearly done that, which is why they invited you to the TED Talk. Well, it, it was a very unique experience. And I'm so grateful. And now I get to travel and, and talk to folks when they'll have me. And I, anywhere from law enforcement negotiation um, conferences or mental health or military, whatever it may be. And many times I get introduced as, hey, this is Kevin Briggs. He saved so many hundreds of people's lives. But I, I don't want to say something bad to that when I first go up. But I say, you know what? I really haven't saved anybody. I think I've been there on, on maybe the, maybe people's darkest day in their lives. And I was a conduit to help them. And that's the big thing is to empower those folks. I don't grab people when they're over that rail. I want them on their own to think about it and come back on their own. I think that starts their life off brand new. They did it. They accepted everything knowing that I didn't fix any of their problems, any of their issues, but they can come back and face them and say, you know what? I do want to live. I'm going to try this another day. And it's very, very important. What are some things that you say to people on the bridge that you think are helpful? I talk about their life. I talk about their past. One of the things is, you know, can you tell me a time in your past, I'm sure there is some, most, you know, most times, that when you were happy, when things were going smooth, 
everything was going along all right, and, and you were smiling, and the day is good, and you want to be around. You're happy. And uh, almost every time, they'll, they'll have something in the past. Was so to prolong that time out, and this is, you know, they'll tell me their story, which is phenomenal. It gets them thinking. And then I say, well, why don't you think that can happen again? And sometimes they'll have some good reasons why. And I said, well, let's talk about that for a little while. And I'm not going to fix anything. I don't even tell them that. I can't. I would be lying to them. And I'm not going to lie. If I promise them a steak dinner, if they come back over, boy, we're, I guess we're stopping for steak dinners. But to get them thinking, I want them to think about what's going on in their life, how it got to that level, and how we can maybe turn this around a little bit. That there is something. There is folks care, starting with me. When I look at them, I, I do that cursory search kind of thing, seeing if there's any weapons on them. But then I, I'm really, I'm just looking at their face. And all I want them to see is my face to show, here's somebody that cares. It starts with me. Now, there's a lot of folks that care over there. Maybe you just haven't run into them yet. Let's see if we can get you some folks. And that's the biggest thing is, you know, many of these people feel that they're all alone. Nobody's going through what they're going through and that, that it's just not going to get any better. Well, I'm hoping it does get better. I'm praying it does get better. At least let's have the opportunity to do that. You know, and unfortunately, um, a number of people come up there under the influence of drugs or alcohol. But I use that also. Brother, you can come up here any day you want. Any day you want to this. But wouldn't you want to come up here when you're sober? Would you let a loved one drive drunk, drive under the influence? Well, of course they say, no, I wouldn't want that. Well, why not? Because they could hurt themselves. They could hurt somebody else. Why? Because your thinking's impaired. Well, right now, to me, your thinking's impaired. This is, a, this is a pretty big deal right here, right? Wouldn't you want to be up here when at least, if you were going to do this, you're sober? And I let them think about that for a while. And, uh, well, I, I think you're right. So at least, we, you know, we know if we can get them off of that day and through that crisis, many, many times they're going to be much better. So after you had become known as the guardian of the Golden Gate and you had achieved uh, really sort of international recognition as somebody who uh, had saved people's lives, you, you, you write in your book that you found out that your own son had been thinking about killing himself. Can you tell us about that? Sure, sure. And I talk about this first as as a cops, first responders, um, those in the mental health field, I think we're all in, in a bond with this particular one together because we give, give, give. We always want to help everybody else. But I think a lot of times we miss what's happening to us, our own health, and we miss what's happening with our families. And this is exactly what happened to me. Uh, I was asked to go speak now at a lot of different places. So I'm flying around talking about everything that's, that's going on, all these stories, and it's happening at home. I land at San Francisco airport, my home airport, and I turn on my cell phone and I have two boys, Kevin Jr. and Travis, the younger one. There's a call from my younger one, Travis. And I think it's a, hey, dad, welcome back home. Stop by our house on the way up to see you know him and, and the ex-wife and, and all that. But it's not. It's little Travis. He goes, dad, you need to get here quick. Kevin broke an iPad. He's in the backyard and he says he's going to kill himself. A little unusual, a little dramatic. So I start heading up there, and on the way, I get a couple of texts from, from Travis, the younger one. And he's, one of them was like, hey, Dad, get here fast, but when you do, say nice things to Kevin. Don't be angry. And I thought it was really cute for me. He was probably 11 years old at the time, just a couple years ago. 
So I get up there and get to the house, and I go in the house, and in the family room, there's there's my ex-wife, there's my sister, there's Travis, and in the backyard, in the dark, is little Kevin just pacing back and forth. And I watch him for a little bit, and then I go out there, and I just put my hand on his shoulder, and I call him baby boy, which he hates. And I go, hey, baby boy, what's going on? And he just breaks down crying, breaks down really, really bad. I've never seen this this little kid break down like this. I go, wow, okay, this is something serious. So we stay out there. We go sit down in the backyard in the darkness, and I try to find out what's going on with him. And uh, I learned, and I found out from him a number of things, and a lot of things I was doing wrong. That Wow, okay, I, I learned a lot. But I had not discussed my divorce with him. I was ashamed and embarrassed by it and everything else. Uh, he thought he was the cause of it, which was 100% wrong. But in that own little, what, I think, 11-year-old mind or 12- or 1-year-old mind, you know, that really hit him hard. And I didn't think I was putting pressure on him for good grades in school. Um, but he said I was. So I was. Easy as that. And a number of things that were going on through his mind. Some of the kids in his school started doing marijuana. And Cupboard offered it to him. He didn't want to do it. He knows being the cop and everything else. I'm pretty much against that stuff. But he wouldn't want to do it anyway. He's big into sports. Big into soccer is his sport. Traveling teams and all that. So... It was just a lot of pressure for his little head. And, you know, he was having a very difficult time. So, yes, he had contemplated it. We decided to see a counselor. On the day of the appointment, I take him, just me, and we get there. And I ask baby boy, Kevin Jr., hey, do you want me in the room with you? I have not done anything like this before. He goes, yeah, Dad, I want you in the room. All right. And, but then I asked the counselor also. I go, hey, do you want me in the room? And he says, oh, yeah, come on in. And I tell him what I had done and what I do for a living now in case there's some suicide ideation. So he knows, all right, it stems from a lot of this, what your dad has done. We go in the room, and the counselor's behind the desk. Baby boy's in front of that, and I'm sitting off to the side, off to the left. He starts asking all these general questions about life. What does he dislike and like about the family members and all these general questions, making sure he's at least safe, that we're not doing anything to him. And he's, he's going into everything. And yes, I'm safe. I feel this and that. And... Then he digs into them a little more and he goes, well, if, if you were gone, don't you think your parents would be sad? And he goes, something to the effect of, well, maybe five to seven years. I said, well, that's different. I learned later on that that's about as far as they can see in the future. Very interesting stuff. And then he digs into them a little more and then the counselor goes, have you ever hurt yourself on purpose? I know exactly what he's talking about. And little baby boy turns up his left hand, takes his right hand, and like he sticks it with a knife or a sharp object. So now what I refer to, what we call a cutter, that non-suicidal self-injury. I had seen this many, many times, many, many times on the bridge, folk cutting themselves prior to a suicide attempt. And I was devastated. I'm, and I'm not thinking he did anything wrong, because he didn't. I'm blaming myself. How did I miss this? How do I let this get to this level? This poor little kid, how did this happen? I have to look sideways because I'm tearing up. It is very, very tough. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm ashamed of myself for this little boy. He is nothing wrong. I'm feeling terrible. Then the counselor asks him a question, and he goes, Well, you're not going to commit suicide, are you? And anybody that knows anything about mental illness and suicides knows that it's a completely crappy way of asking this question. Um, 
number one, get out from behind that desk, that barrier. Get next to that kid if you're going to do that with anybody and do, and ask him a question. But certainly not like that. I was, wow, I was really taken back. I'm like, are you kidding me? You didn't taste that. Only because I've done this a lot of times that I know this is, this is the wrong way. I'm like, wow. He goes, no, no, no. And then it, it ended shortly thereafter. And I asked the counselor if I could talk with him afterwards. Um, he just did not have the training in suicide assessment. And I think a lot of folks maybe word it like that because they don't want to hear the yes word. What happens if they say yes? Well, what do you do now? So uh, we talked. He didn't have the ego. You know, he had a lot of training like, like all the counselors do and such. Very nice guy. We actually stayed with him. I explained my position, what I had done, and oh, he was, you know, apologetic and such. We stayed with him, and little Kevin Jr. is doing much, much better now. I learned a lot. But this, I think this is what happens to a lot of first responders, those in the mental health field, those any kind of folks that, that give, give, give to society and stuff, is we fail to see what's going on with ourselves, and a lot of times we fail to see what's going on with our families. And this is what happened to me, and I was very, very lucky that this turned out you know, on a, on a good way, on a good path. That's an amazing story. All of it's amazing. Every part of it. Um, I really appreciate you sharing about your son because, as you said, I think one of the things that happens for first responders, mental health folks, is that we are used to being the ones who uh, are helping. We're used to being the ones who say, oh, I see what's going on. I am going to do something. But then to be in the position of sitting in the office and saying, wait a minute, I don't know if I can help right this minute. Maybe somebody else needs to step in. Maybe I need to be here as a family member right? Not the guardian of the Golden Gate, I think is a really difficult thing for folks to switch into. I think you're absolutely right. And I would add to that, I would say, um, don't be afraid to be the client sometimes. I, I think that's difficult for us, especially cops sometimes, especially motor cops like myself. We get these egos and all that. I can handle everything. Well, you can't. I can tell you. <laughs> don't be afraid to be the client. You know, you'll, you'll live longer. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today on the Social Work Podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast.